This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I might have been, if I wasn't the first, I was one of the first telework people in the Department of the Navy. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Today, we come to you from the Halifax International Security Forum, where I'm joined today by Beth McGrath. Beth is currently Deloitte's global leader for government and public services, and she has years of experience working in the Department of Defense, which we're looking forward to discussing with you on today's podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Beth. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, so you are currently in the corporate world with Deloitte, but prior to this, experienced over 25 years in the federal government? Sadly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what first got you into government? What sparked your interest? Like many 20, early 20-somethings, I didn't really have a I'll say a really good idea about what I wanted to do. And at a job fair, the Department of Navy was there. It was interesting because it was both the sea side of the Navy and the air side. So the Naval, mm. Naval Sea Systems Command, Naval Air Systems Command. And I thought, you know, each of them had these sort of internship programs. And I was like, oh, this sounds right up my alley. So, you know, don't really know what I wanted to do. I was yeah. just graduating with a degree in economics and, you know, a three-year internship around what we now call supply chain. Back then it was logistics. You know, it was sort of go to class, continue mm -hmm. to learn, mm -hmm. which sounded like something I could do coming yeah. out of college. <laughs> I ended up uh, working for the Naval Sea Systems Command in this logistics internship program. And it was really eye-opening. Again, my, my degree was in economics. Logistics was not on my mind in terms of a career field, but just the, the whole construct of the program I, was really appealing to me. And I thought, well, you know, let's try it. And then you sort of, you get into it and you realize, hey, this is pretty cool. And you're doing things. And, and I, sh I should say, I was a Navy brat. So my dad okay. was went to the Naval Academy. And so, you know, I had a, an appreciation for sort of the Navy, but as yeah. a family member, not, a, you know, I'll say a warfighter, if you will. And I think just being in the program, it really gave me sort of insight and appreciation for what all our men and women, now much, many more women now, yeah. sort of back then, they weren't on ships. For sort of their their contribution, not just to the to the Navy, but really the safety and security of the United States, which I, even though I was a Navy family member, didn't have a true true appreciation for. You know, you know, your dad's away and things like that. But it really gave me an appreciation. I think that was really the sort of the spark to sort of public service for me is that internship program of all things. Well, it's funny, like I spend a lot of time talking with younger professionals who are looking at joining government or trying to figure out the way in. And we often talk about these really squirrely ways that, you know, because it's so hard to be hired by the federal government. But sometimes just going through the front door is exactly what to do. You know, it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the German-American conference sponsored by Harvard, so the John F. Kennedy School. 
I talked to so, so many young students and it was run by the students. And they're all asking me like, do, well, do you think it's a good idea to like go work in the private sector first and then go into government or go into government and then go to private sector? I said, honestly, there's no formula. It's sort of timing and opportunity. And I do think just, you know, to my bones that some time in public service gives you a very different perspective on so many things that it is a benefit to do that. And whether or not you stay for a, a career like I did or, or you go for a period of time, I, I just think it's so valuable. What led you to transition to Deloitte 10 years ago? It'll be 10 years uh, yeah. in uh, in January. I, I cringe not because it's 10 years at Deloitte, but that it's 10 years already. <laughs> you know, it's it was interesting because, you know, again, so I started as an intern. I left as a political appointee in yeah. the Obama administration, which was not my plan. Like, I did not have that plan. <laughs> and I learned that if you're Senate confirmed that you're eligible for a sort of an early retirement, there's a different retirement calculus. Typically, it's you have to have age and years, mm-hmm. and in a your Senate confirmed, you can have one or the other. Maybe I'll look at you know the private sector earlier. And yeah. so during Obama's second term, so first year, mm-hmm. second term, I hit my twenty five years. And so I thought, well, what what are the possibilities? I honestly had never really thought about transitioning to the private sector. You know, I was in, I was, I was going to retire from government. And then when I found out that I could retire early, I started to explore companies. And I really looked just, I think, like people do for any job, sort of culture fit and job fit and things like that. I ended up at Deloitte and where I had honestly no aspiration to run our government business globally either. Uh, Small portfolio. It's about $10 billion. A little That's over- mind-blowing. Yeah, I I guess it is. But when you come from the Department of Defense, which is my IT portfolio was about the same size. And, you know, the budget of the the Defense Department, gosh, uh, during the Iraq War was, um, you know, just under a trillion dollars. And so it's all relative. (laughs) It's all relative. I'm not saying it's not, you know, up there, but it's all relative. It's interesting because I I feel like listening to myself now, I'm thinking, oh, like I had no plan going into government and I really had no plan going into Deloitte or even into the private sector. I thought, well, let me try it. Honestly, the first year it was so... I'll say different, going from a very hierarchically driven organization and organized organization to a very, very matrixed one. It was an enormous transition. In defense, you know who you work for, you know what your roles and responsibilities are. Mm-hmm. And in Deloitte, it's very entrepreneurial and it's very matrix. And so it's like you work for nobody and everybody at the same time, depending on what you're doing. And it's very team-based which I really appreciate because, you you know, you're never alone, Yeah, which I really like. That's fantastic. So turning to the decision that you wanted to talk with us today, which is about bringing change to the Department of Defense as the first chief management officer. Thank you so much for bringing this to us for a couple of reasons, not only your insights into it, but also it was such a contentious position that was established, but so critically important. And then it was disestablished in what, 2021. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love your views on like, what was the, the challenge that you were facing going in? And how did you approach this and your views on whether the department still needs a CMO function. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot. I just that fire hose at you. So we'll take it wherever you want to go. But, but I guess to start, how did you become the chief management officer? 
I'd say purely by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Because I, I'll just say at that time, I had nearly 20 years in, like you become part of the institution. And at the time, I mean, if you go back and say, gosh, I can't even remember the years, but there was this financial management modernization program. And they're like, oh, it's more than finance. Okay, we'll make it the business management, you know, modernization program. Okay, but it's really more than just sort of acquisition because it moved from controller to ATL, and it was like, you know, we really need somebody who's persistently focused on the management of the departments or the what I term the business of defense. It's the operational piece, but it's also the sort of the understanding the the cost and and the value. And so there's many studies done and many perspectives on we should we have somebody focused or we have a deputy secretary. We have two deputy secretaries, which Mm. was a total non-starter from a defense perspective. But then it was, but I was doing these kinds of things. I was part of this business modernization program, really trying to establish, you know, sort of the enterprise perspective on what we do, like, and how we support the core mission of the department. Which is so challenging as well. So you've got the services focused on training. You've got the combatant commands doing operations. You've got, like, particularly after Goldwater Nichols, this, like, heavy layer of OSD trying to bring it together, kind of, I mean, to varying degrees of success. I think in part because it's more than just layering on bureaucracies and functions. It's management, which is a much more significant challenge, yeah? Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because, so I was working for Gordon England, so this was all established at the tail end of the Bush administration, and, and so we stood it up, and I think there were five or seven people or something like that. And it was basically a, we'll let the next administration really decide what they want to do. And this yeah. is when, you know, so Obama team came in and Bill Lynn was the deputy secretary. And it was trying, it was, it wasn't to do others jobs. And it was, that was really important for people to understand. It was to optimize across the functions, right? Yeah. Because I'm part of the institution already, I think part of the reason to bring someone like me into that role is I know how the Pentagon works, right? Like I I get how the E-ring works, like I, I understand. And I think it was actually easier for someone like me to be the first person as opposed to bringing someone, you know, outside the department Mm -hmm. into the department as others who succeeded me had limited government or defense experience. I think Secretary Carter came in as the ATNO. Bob Hale was the comptroller. I, I caught them all as they came in the door. And I said, there's this new role. Here it is, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm it and we need to work together. And so it really was defining the sort of the seams across those functions because yeah. we are organized vertically, but we execute horizontally. And so it was, a, yeah. it was a way to say, look, I'm not looking to do anything in your organization. What I am looking to do is optimize performance mm-hmm. for, you know, how we deliver against sort of the, the business aspects of the defense department. So for the benefit of our listeners, when you talk about a seam, like what would be a practical instance? Cure to pay would be the the process or a left to right horizontally, but then it would be a purchase transaction meets so there's contracting and money. There's a people yeah. transaction and there's money. There's almost money in everything everything <laughs> we do, right? Right. right. And a distribution from logistics. You have to buy something to then distribute it. Yeah. So it's the how do you optimize your accounting function 
with your procurement or contracting function and the whole HR and the whole supply chain, because normally those are, you know, some sort of procurement action. You're buying something, you're delivering something, you're developing something. And so it was really to take a look at sort of the three main processes of the department, right? Acquisition money and requirements and say, how, how do we support it from a, a business perspective such that we're delivering the stuff people need when and where they need it? If it's right. paychecks, right. if it's material, if it's whatever. But it was to really sort of zoom out and say, you know, what's the enterprise need from the collective us? And, and it was interesting because the Congress, when they passed the legislation to establish the chief management officer, they also had included in the legislation was this uh, develop the strategic management plan. And so you have the national defense strategy, right? And all yeah. that. And then it was like, well, so what's the what's the management plan that goes with that? And yeah. so I use that as almost the, um, I don't know, it was a catalyst, but it was a, a mechanism by which to get everybody's inputs and to get the, you know, identify the seams, if you will, in these sort of end-to-end processes. So procure to pay, hire to retire, order to cash, all these really cool things that we love to talk about. But it was really getting into the details of like, what does that actually mean when these things don't work together? And it means yeah. people don't get paid, material doesn't get to where it's supposed to, you're not optimizing your uh, workforce distribution from a military perspective. And so we actually turned it into these outcomes. Then people go, oh, well, yeah, I like, I want to, I want to help with that. I want to do right the best. Cause I think the intent is always positive. I believe that, but the actions that follow aren't always helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you've got this sort of clarity of objective mm-hmm. and then alignment. Because if you don't have clarity or alignment, then it's, <laughs> it's not going to work. No, no bueno. <laughs> no bueno. So Congress repealed the CMO position in 2021. So years after you've been off doing your thing in Deloitte running $10 billion of stuff and the repeal happened. I'm curious as to your views on that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I had, I'll say many people call me for both sort of in government, but also media, hey, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to say something about it? And I said, you know, the decision, it's hard to like opine about a decision that was already been made. And, and so, but I would say, does the department need focus on sort of the business and management of the organization? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think you're seeing certainly when Team Biden came in and Catholics mm-hmm. in particular, and she brought uh, Mike Donnelly back in. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. bless his heart to be again the mm-hmm. director for administration and management. And that was a clear sign to me that she understood that while we're not going to do a CMO anymore, we yeah. still need to maintain focus. And so, what do we do? Right. And and so they really took a look at some of the I'll call them process or procedural kind of things, and where those mm-hmm. things reside. You know, how are they handling the sort of business IT? if you will. They established the Defense Management Institute through uh, IDA for the Institute for Defense Analysis. And and Peter Levine, who also served as the, I think he was the second chief management officer, but only for a short period of time because he then went to be personnel in readiness. Right. But he was long time Senate Armed Services Committee, you know, staff and counsel. And so you have somebody now who is at this Defense Management Institute, who, by the way, is communicating with all kinds of people like myself mm-hmm. in terms of contributing to, I'll say, bettering mm-hmm. the sort of performance. And so I think it's, while the position itself isn't there, the military departments still have their uh, chief management office functions, you know, tied to their number two on the civilian side. So the unders of the 
Army, Navy, and Air Force. And so I think there's, it didn't stick as a, as a position. I, I think that at least with this team, they're really looking at, you know, how do you systemically embed yeah. this into the thinking of the organization, which will take time. It, it, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a cultural shifts take time. I and mean, the, the department's an aircraft carrier, not a dinghy. Right? So it takes a while to, to shift things in, in any direction. Yeah. And I, and I actually think being in the private sector and I, I see the same conversation nearly in every country, mm-hmm. like every single country, you can pick any organization defense or otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, they're looking at how do you optimize the business of what I'll say, whatever the organization does and stovepipe nature and, mm-hmm. you know, cultural you know, sort of clashes and challenges to do things. But this is where I, I really see that the technology and the silver lining of COVID, so many organizations, and this is a broad statement across many countries, wouldn't do robotics process automation. They wouldn't do R- RPA because they were like, I don't you know, mm-hmm. know if I can trust that thing. And they were worried mm-hmm. about their jobs. Yeah. Virtualization of desktops, people yeah. working from home. I mean, the whole thing has shifted because of COVID. So I think you're, you've got now, I'm seeing more open-mindedness to both automation and then understanding what the automation does for them, right? It's an enabler to an outcome. And so I really feel now there's this great, greater opportunity to change in cloud. You know, it's more about data protection and sovereignty and less about, should I go to the cloud? People understand, no, it's actually probably more secure to be in the cloud than all your old stuff that you've had for a very long time. And so I, I really think COVID helped with that yeah. to sort of open both hearts and minds to, okay, we, we need to get to cloud. How do we get there? You know, and let's take this opportunity to, to really sort of transform how we do what we do. But going back to the department, you know, I, I'm, I'm heartened by this, you know, Defense Management Institute and the things you're trying to do. And so there's still a long way to go for sure, because yeah. it's a ginormous enterprise, but but I'm, I'm heartened by the actions and activities of, of the team. Yeah, the people are still pushing the, the, the rock up the hill, and it's Absolutely. just going to take a long time. To end our conversation, I'm just curious about your reflections on whether or not you feel that your gender, as a woman, impacted how you approached the CMO position and the decisions that you've taken as part of that role. And if so, why? And if not, why not? It's interesting. Sometimes I forget I'm female (laughs) because starting way back in the day, I always say a hundred years ago, and when I was starting this sort of even internship and I was doing work on ships, women were not on ships then. And you literally were the only female. And it was really uncomfortable, you know, in that type of an environment. And then I knew I was the female because I was the, I was literally the, (laughs) The in, in like hundreds you know, as I sort of made my way in the department through a bunch of different jobs. I I never really sort of focused on, you know, am I, am I getting a position or not a position because I'm a, I'm a female, but I would, I would also say that I also had just a tremendous experience where I had so many mentors and mm-hmm. allies who were sort of pushing me further than I thought I could go yeah. throughout my entire career. Yeah. And so, and I don't know that I appreciated all that was happening while it was happening. It was more sort of reflecting because at the time I was like, oh no, I'm not ready. For, like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and they're like, let us know how it goes. You know? and, and it really was sort of more reflective than yeah. not. But I also think that when I was having, when, when my son was born, like I was never sick, never took any time off. So I had all this leave and they had this mm-hmm. family friendly leave act at the time. And they're like, oh, you can take like six months off or something. I was like, oh, I'll have that. 
in the office was like, uh, are you, are you sure? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure. Because <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. like, I'm the only one who knows how to take care of my child. And I'm totally inexperienced because I've never had one before. <laughs> and so they said, well, what if we did like a part-time thing? And they hmm. said, well, like t- say more about that. So we ended up establishing, I, I might have been, if I wasn't the first, I was one of the first telework people in the department of the Navy. The deal was, what if we set up a thing for you at home and then you come back earlier? And I said, well, okay, so let's try that. And so literally, I remember my my son sort of sleeping. I know people can't see, but he's like sleeping on my lap, if you will, and me typing. Itty bitty. bitty, And he's 6'3 now. Uh, (laughs) Very different. Yeah. Very different visual. Uh, but, (laughs) But it was, you know, and then I knew I was a working mom. And I thought, well, this works for me and it works for, you know, us, if you will, the sort of my son, because I was like, I'm not leaving. And it was tremendous, but it was, it was really the, I'll say the support and the ingenuity of the people I worked with who were men who said, let's figure something out. Wow. Because at the time I was working on a weapon systems platform for the Navy and I ran the budget, the contract, all that kind of, all the the business kind of stuff. And I was the acquisition person. It was like, they needed me. Yeah. And I knew they needed me, by the way. Uh, but it it really worked. And yeah. so I think then... Like, you knew your value. You yeah. knew your... And, and you were willing to, you know, establish boundaries and let the department come to you. I don't know that I knew my value. Like, my value. I knew I didn't want to leave my son. I was willing... Find a win-win because I, I, I mean, honestly, I love the team I was on. You know, I love the people. You don't want to let them down. And yeah. so I wanted to help. And so yeah. and they were gracious enough to sort of find a way to make it work. I don't think I would have come up with that myself to yeah. say, hey, how about this? I don't know that I would have had the strength to say how about this? Yeah. You know, yeah. and and I think as I sort of grew older and more experienced and even the um, secretary Lynn asked, would I be then, you know, consider being the chief management officer? I was like, oh, I said, I need to make sure like I can spend time with my family because now my my son was a um, freshman in high school and I did the book for his basketball games. Yeah. And the freshmen play at four o'clock. And so on Tuesdays and Thursdays or Tuesdays and Fridays, I had to leave at like, you know, quarter to three because mm-hmm. traffic can be bad. Yeah. And so I just said, well, as long as I can have the flexibility to be where I need to be, then... Like I knew I could do the job. I just didn't want to be in a position to, you know, choose between my family or my work. And I'll just say Secretary Lynn was incredibly supportive. He he was like, well, of course, you know, it was just sort of a like, you shouldn't even think about that. You should just do it. And that was that was incredible. But it was, you know, all along, I, you know, have definite passion for service and for my work. Mm-hmm. Like I want to do a great job always, but I, I also want to do a great job at home. And I just never wanted to be in a position to have to choose. And I think as women are going through, especially if you have a family, but anything that sort of, you know, is a a demand on you as a person, if it's taking care of, you know, or or other things you'd like to do, it's really hard to find the appropriate balance sometimes. But I think for me, it was just never a question that my family would always come before my work, but I wouldn't let my work suffer. And that puts a lot of pressure, I think, on women or anybody who has this 
demand on them to do, you know, be all things to all people. Yeah, that resonates. I mean, like, as I'm the now the the mother of two, under two, and that some of the things that you're saying are really resonating with me. How you know, thinking about that balance and how do you make sure your work and and family is that you're present for both spheres of your life. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It was it was great. I'm looking forward, however, to my first cup of coffee. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.